Welcome to Wise Up Governance and Boards podcast, brought to you by Three Wise Owls Governance Consultants. Covering hot topics in governance, risk, latest regulatory changes, and issues keeping directors and executives awake at night. Here are your hosts, Ainsley Cunningham and Deb Anderson. Welcome to another episode of Wise Up. Today we're joined by Anne-Marie Rogers and Maria Newman from Marsh. Anne-Marie is a Senior Vice President and leads the Queensland Corporate Segment for Marsh, world leader in delivering risk and insurance services and solutions and part of the Marsh and McLennan Group of Companies. A Fellow of the Australian and New Zealand Institute of Insurance and Finance, Anne-Marie started her career in Glasgow and has 30 years insurance industry experience in the UK and Australia. In her current role, Anne-Marie oversees client service delivery and insurance solutions for clients and is also responsible for business development in Queensland. Previous roles include client account management, new business and insurance program placement in local and international insurance markets. Her client servicing experience spans a wide range of industries, including real estate, retail, manufacturing, food and beverage, utilities, aviation and government entities. Welcome, Anne-Marie. Thanks, Ainsley. So Maria is the Managing Principal and Vice President of Risk Management at Marsh. Maria is a corporate insurance broker and risk advisor with over 20 years experience in design, placement and management of complex insurance programs. Maria is an accountant by trade, having completed a Bachelor of Business with a major in accounting and a Master of Business Administration with a finance major through QUT's Business Graduate School of Business. In her current role, Maria works with a diverse range of clients from ASX 200 and multinational companies to government-owned corporations across several industry sectors, including real estate, retail and consumer goods, infrastructure, manufacturing and aged care. Maria has expertise in property and casualty lines with special interests in managing multinational programs, insurance due diligence and contractual insurance and indemnity reviews. Welcome, Maria. Thank you, Deb. So, ladies, how has the insurance market been playing out presently? Pretty difficult conditions at the moment, I think, for for many clients. Um, Some industry sectors, I think, are finding it more challenging than others. Um, And obviously, depending on the size of your organisation and and the amount of capacity, etc., that you're looking to... uh, you know, for the market to provide to you, um, you might find that um, pretty challenging, particularly around directors and officers' liability, as we were talking earlier. Um, but also even on the property side, depending on the industry sector and whether it's considered high hazard or... Um, but look, I think it's uh, it was already a challenging market um, going into 2020 and having COVID obviously has, has made that a little bit uh, more challenging. Um, so, yeah, it's been an interesting year. So, Maria, what other challenges have you seen in the market at present? Yeah, definitely. So, in, you know, on top of what Anne-Marie's mentioned, um, you know, obviously pricing has been an issue across all different uh, segments of insurance, be it DNR or property or casualty. Um, in the Pacific, we've experienced 14 consecutive quarters of pricing increase with the largest one uh, having been in Q2 2020. Um, In terms of capacity, that's also um, coming down quite significantly. Um, Insurers are wanting to write less risk for a higher price. Um, They are dropping down their deployed capacity. um, And, yeah, they're not really 
wanting to write new business. They don't have the appetite for new business like they do. They're not focused on growth um, at the moment. They're really focused on getting their books back to profitability. So has there been um, impacts from the bushfires, et cetera, from a NatCat climate change um, property perspective? Yeah, definitely. So like I mentioned before, like it's been going up uh, consecutively since 2017 anyway, but definitely the events of um, late last year and early this year in terms of bushfires and, and weather events have really exacerbated that. Um, I mentioned before that the pricing increase as at Q2 2020 for, uh, for property uh, policies across the Pacific was around about 31%. So that's, that's, that's quite large. I mean, it's, it's increasing at an increasing rate as well. So, um, and we're not out of the woods yet. Um, in terms of um, what insurers are doing now as well, I mean, this whole, you know, um, climate change risk and changing physical risks and extreme weather events, it's really forcing the need for insurers to make more investments on new tools and new modelling to enable better decision-making for them in the long run. Um, you also see the Insurance Council of Australia, for example, working more with governments and communities to really increase and strengthen that resilience of communities against natural disasters. Um, so you, you'll see that the Insurance Council of Australia, they're working around, um, you know, with government in introducing stronger building codes, um, implementing... Um, you know, improved land use planning and, and, and all those stuff are, are all happening now. So definitely climate change is at the forefront of, you know, the insurance market's minds and, and government's minds and, yeah. Are there any exclusions um, being introduced as a result of these changes? Look, I think um, insurers are looking really closely at the, the risks that they rate and so the answer to that generally is is yes um, but you might not find that you have a uh, you know a total exclusion on a policy it might be things uh, you know where they'll look at the sublimit that, that they're providing um, whether it be flood or whether it be um, action by the sea or cyclone or um, bushfire depending on the region that you're in um, so you have to look pretty closely at, at the terms that you're getting back and, and, and what's on offer. Um, as Maria mentioned, you know, looking at different tools for our clients, the things that we talk to them about is uh, making sure that you've actually got a good uh, understanding of what your NatCat risk is rather than rely on the insurer to come back to you with an offering. So if you undertake certain um, studies, whether it be uh, for flood or for earthquake or, or, or you know, bushfire or, or the like, um, but get an idea of, of, of where your your um, exposure actually lies across your, your property portfolio. Um, have a good understanding of that. Um, and then obviously critically look at the, the offering that an insurer might come to you um, at your, your next renewal and, and, and see how that actually responds um, for you in relation to running your business. Mm. I think in terms of that tool that Anne-Marie is referring to, this you know, NatCat modelling tools, I mean, Ainsley, you, you and I experienced that working with each other in the past life, um, you know, doing that exercise and, and just the, the tremendous insight and monetary benefit it ended up having yep. once you really assess and know um, what your real exposure is mm. um, and then make appropriate, you know, insurance procurement decisions based yep. on that science. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So what sort of impact has COVID had on 
insurance market obviously there's the question there is the share are a lot longer because they're asking a lot more questions but yeah. what other impacts has it had look i think we're still yet to see um what ultimately the impact's going to be because you know um certain clients will have had coverage under their policies and and some might not um there are a number of claims obviously um uh, you know, potentially be paid that, that the insurers haven't yet paid out. So in terms of the, the monetary value around that, I think that's that's yet to be seen what that impact is. Um, but certainly in the short term, um, if you didn't have an exclusion um, for, um, you know, infectious disease cover before, you, you will have it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, so again, you know, as, as a, you know, an advisor to, to your client, looking at their business, what that actually means for you, um, what that might mean for you in terms of um, being able to, you know, not being able to transfer that risk now, but how you're going to actually risk manage that, um, and you know, obviously impacts different businesses um, in different ways. And you know, I've had conversations with some of our clients where um, a certain business model, um, you know, you know, there's there's been growth, but since COVID, that's changed now. So they're having to rethink, you know, where potentially they might be sort of focusing in, in terms of their business growth and their business strategy and objectives um, over the next few years because what they thought they had perhaps is not quite the same as what it was before. Yeah, mm. yeah it's, it's, it's definitely cha- changing the, the insurance market. Um, I mean, from, from a claims perspective, obviously, we don't know what the out- full outcome of that yet in terms of its economic value. Um, but there are already some indications from Lloyd's that it's even higher than all of the, you know, three hurricanes combined in 2017. For yeah. example, you've got Irma, Maria and Harvey. It's, it's more than that combined. Um, it's, it's actually the single largest, provided their estimates are fairly accurate in terms of how policies would respond. Um, it's actually the single highest sort of catastrophe um, compared to those other natural catastrophes that we've had in the past. Mm. Um, so, yeah, the insurers are really facing, potentially facing catastrophic losses. We don't know yet how, how the policies would respond. Um, it really depends on your, and, and I'm talking about business interruption losses here because that's where um, most of the contention is in. Like, you know, you've got event cancellation claims and travel claims. They're, they're pretty straightforward. We pretty much know what the outcome of claims from those policies are. But in terms of, you know, um, DNO claims or liability claims and property claims. That's there's still a long way to go before we really know what that looks like. Mm. Um, in in the UK, they just um, passed a decision, the UK High Court, for that FCA test case, and that's really overall in general. That's l- you know um, looking in favour of um, of policyholders. It, it will probably get appealed. Um, so we'll wait and see what's going to happen there. Um, in Australia, there was a test case as well, a similar but narrower in scope than, than the UK, um, around how business interruption policy should respond. Um, I think that was heard early October, the 2nd of October, by New South Wales Court of Appeals. So we're yet to hear what the judgment is on that, but that could potentially be impacted by the UK um, decision as well. Mm. Yeah. And I kind of... Um wonder how the cruise industry will be impacted because they're kind of twofold in terms of business interruption. They're losing in the millions mm. on a daily basis yeah. um, as well as the potential for liability Claim. and class action sort of claims yeah. coming being brought against yeah. them by, you know, um, 
passengers or people who've lost yeah, their lives? Definitely. Or? Yeah, it's not, it's not surprising. You know, when we hear about it, we shouldn't be surprised that, you know, a class action of some sort has been brought against, mm. uh, you know, because, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. probably bound to happen. So obviously as a risk manager, insurance is predominantly a risk transfer strategy, but with almost two-thirds of the damage um, off the back of natural catastrophe in the US being uninsured, um, that would leave millions of people with um, and businesses exposed to a large protection gap. What uh, can businesses be doing to strengthen resilience against climate change and natural catastrophes going forward? Well, we we touched on it a little bit already um, in terms of NatCat modelling. Okay, so having an understanding of your risk is probably um, the, the the most crucial thing, um, because, like you say, you can't simply just transfer that. Um, so, um, depending on on the the assets that you have, and and you can look at it in a couple of different ways. Uh, you can have an accumulation of assets in a, a high hazard area. Or you can have linear assets, which might cross a number of different areas. Um, looking at it from an ATCAT modelling perspective, um, it, it's one of the things that Marsh advises it, its clients. It, it get a good idea around what that looks like for you um, so that you can make an informed decision in terms of if you can buy insurance, you know what limit you need to buy. So um, you can obviously optimise the premium spend. Um, equally, if, if you know you have, uh, you might be prepared to take higher retention levels on certain um, uh, types of um, you know catastrophe losses, um, if that obviously suits your organisation. Um, other areas, you know, whether it be um, you know flood cyclone again, the same thing applies. It really is just getting that understanding of, of what your exposure is. If, in, you know, you can buy insurance, how affordable that's going to be for you and make the decisions from there. Um, I don't know if you've got any yeah. other thoughts on that, Maria. So, yeah, I mean, on top of that, obviously that's a really good way to identify and quantify what your exposures are. It just places you, you know, in a, in a volatile market that we have now, it places you in a, in a better position than, than other insurers competing for capacity. But in, in, in addition to that, I think... Really looking at um, managing the implications of, you know, natural catastrophes and climate change risks, looking at the implications of that to your business, reviewing your, you know, your business's resiliency plans, your business continuity plannings, asset and supply chain resiliency, all those stuff. Um, that's, that's one of the best ways to really look at how those risks are implicating on your business and how you can manage that. I suppose one of the things as well is that, you know, when you, you're actually looking to ensure this, and, and Ainsley's Maria said you've had experience of this before, you, you look at something and you say, well, look, I'm, I might need um, $20 million worth of cover, you know, but unless you actually go through that exercise and actually understand why that is the case, mm. you could be putting yourself in a position that you're buying cover in areas that doesn't have that same level of exposure. So it's making sure that the underwriter who might be rating your risks knows um, what that, that exposure is. You may also say to me, yeah, but surely they do their own modelling. Mm-hmm. And, and they probably do. Um, but they're not always necessarily, depending on where they're located, quite often if you're transferring risk into um, an underwriter in London, for example, they might not be buying the most up-to-date um, modelling software. 
Okay, mm. so being able to be in control of what you're actually presenting to the market, and this is the key thing, is the presentation to the market and painting your risk in the best light that you can. Mm. Um, that's where you get the advantages as well. As, like, we've got this running joke in the industry that um, London underwriters just think that the whole of Queensland yeah. is either underwater or on fire. <laughs> so they don't really know. If, if you say Brisbane, they think it's, it's all flood zone. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not. <laughs> so in terms of um, climate change, are you seeing insurers uh, expecting um, carbon emission reduction targets for clients or not quite yet? Not quite yet. I don't think, yeah, we're not seeing that yet. Mm. Um, obviously, I think they factor that into their modelling. Mm. Um, but... Yeah, it's not something that they are sort of pushing, pushing on clients. I don't think they really can do that yet. Mm. I think it's interesting. Um, Maria and I were having a chat um, in the last couple of days, and um, the um, probably something that you're aware of. Uh, Marsha McLennan um, participates in the World Economic for the production of the the Global Risk Report, for the World Economic Forum, um, along with Zurich and Tunis and others. So it gives you a broad brush. Uh, or a, a broad sort of spectrum of, of views across business and um, and government and academia, etc., in terms of what the, the top risks are. In that report was released January, February 2020, mm. um, and that virtually all of the top ten risks were all um, environmental or climate change related. That's what people were focusing on. So yeah, whilst insurers are looking at obviously looking closely at that, our, our clients and, and businesses are looking at that as well. It's mm. seen as um, you know a major focus for them in terms of um, not only just buying insurance, but in terms of you know their own risk management and their own uh, how they're running their business. Mm. And I think too, with change of government etc. Globally, yeah. there could be some um, sort of government Shift. mandated mm. targets yeah. and. Absolutely. So in terms of directors and officers insurance renewals, what are some of the challenges that companies are facing with their insurance renewals? Fun topic. (laughs) (laughs) Fun topic for for most directors and officers. So, I mean, definitely pricing and capacity, they're the two main challenges that um, insurance are now facing. So um, according to Marsh's benchmarking data for ASX, ASX 200 clients, um, renewals in the first two quarters of this year, um, premium spend in that space is up 170% on average. Um, in some extreme cases, they're up 600%. And then retentions are soaring as well, you know, up to 300%. Um, worryingly as well is the shareholder or the securities class action that's impacting on the ASX listed company space that's reverberating as well into all of the DNO policies for um, you know small to medium sized enterprises and not for profits. Um, so for, for some not for profits and, and SMEs, it's actually becoming getting to the point of unaffordability now. So across Marsh's SME and, and not for profit clients, um, uh, renewals this year are up anywhere from forty percent to two hundred percent. Retentions for ASX listed clients are, you know, soaring into the tens of millions, and in, in some cases, some extreme cases, hundreds of millions. So insureds are now holding much more of the risk that insurer, insurers used to hold. Um, but even with that, you're still seeing insurers exiting from the market. Like you've got Allianz, for example, exiting from all long tail liability claims, so that mm. includes DNR. 
and that's again impacting on the whole you know supply and capacity of insurance which is then driving that price it's like a vicious circle so yeah pricing and capacity definitely are are where the challenges are are you seeing some exclusions on royal commission from those policies um Look, that, I, I suppose depending on mm. the, the, the industry, the industry. Yeah, edge care yeah. and, and, and the like, mm. um, yeah, I think it's, um, look, again, it, it's just a challenging market. So, yes, mm. you you know, and certain insurers, you know, come in, they, they'll want to um, add their exclusions on there. Mm. Um, giving yourself enough time to make sure that you actually have some options and you can actually sort of look closely at any of those exclusions or limitations they're putting on a policy um, is really important. Don't leave things to the last minute, you know, because if you do think you, you know, um, you want to have a conversation with them, you want to sort of examine exactly what those um, sort of exclusions actually mean for you and your organisation. So, yeah. And there have been, I think I've heard of some certain exclusions being applied on certain clients. So it's not a broad brush exclusion being applied across um, for certain clients, and as Anne-Marie said before, for certain industries. Um, there have been some exclusions being applied on certain policies around royal commissions. So mm. the implication of that is, you know, if, if anything is going to come about from the royal commission, you should already know that. So you should be reporting yeah. that already. So that's when the importance of timely notification, because, as you know, DNO policies are what you call claims-made policies. Mm. So the importance of timely, timely notification comes in um, because the the intention of the exclusion is that notify to us now everything you know that could come out of you know a royal commission before your renewal because if you notify us after your renewal when the exclusion comes in then it's not no longer covered so you know clients in, in insureds can still have the protection as long as they notify it before the exclusion comes on. Mm. It's just that transparency, isn't it? That's right. right. Yep. And so in terms of the parliamentary inquiry into class actions and litigation funding, how are you seeing that impact the DNO space? Um, look, at the, it will obviously have an impact. I mean, you know, insurers, um, as we say, you know, they're, they're um, not necessarily going to be in a in a hurry to rate new business, etc. So I think all of this coming in um, will um, improve the situation. Um, but look, you know, when when Maria mentioned sort of earlier, just with COVID, I mean, when you look at potentials for class actions sort of coming, in, you know, around that, I don't think that's going to go away. I think a bit more um, rigor and legislation around um, how those can be conducted will be a good thing, and I think they'll have a you know, a benefit towards how the insurance market then responds. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I echo that. I mean, yeah. it's, um, when when there are parliamentary inquiries in royal commissions, I mean, obviously, what comes out of that is increased um, pressure in terms of higher levels of compliance and standards. Yeah. So, with that underwriting from insurers, but also become tighter you know they'd, they'd want more information as well around how you're managing those solvency risks and and, and all all those yeah. things so i think in terms of how it impacts you know insurance market and insurance renewals it's just really um on you know insurers putting more scrutiny in terms of how directors and companies are managing mm. managing their business 
So with the, I guess, given so many increases across so many quarters consistently, mm. um, presumably the market is expected to harden further. What can boards be doing now to ensure that um, they have continuous coverage and that they retain and attract the right um, director talent around the board table? That's really, yeah, that's that's a conundrum because it's, um, you know, if you don't have the right protection and the right levels of insurance, why would anyone want to be a director when their personal assets could be at risk, you know? So it's, I mean, being a director in this climate, it's, it's I don't envy that, you know, that position, it's, it's hard, but there are ways that you can ensure, you know, your coverage uh, continues uh, at least to some level. It might not be to the level that you want it, but at least to some level. And also ways to, again, better position yourself in a market where you're competing for very limited capacity. Um, so, you know, firstly, examining, really examining the coverages that you have now um, and looking at what those cover and whether you need it. Um, the thing that Morrison Shorts did uh, back in the soft market when things, there was a lot of capacity and, and pricing was fairly cheap. Um, was that, and we do this at Marsh, we call, we call it, we've got a colleague that calls it the squirrel effect. It's, mm. it's like in the soft market when times are good, you gather all your nuts, you put all the bells and whistles and you put so much fat in your program when it doesn't cause you much or you know, anything at all. So that in the hard market, you've got a lot of fat in your program to give away when you need it. Um, so that's what, yeah, so really looking at, reviewing at what coverages you have, do you still need it? Do you need that much? Um, we're seeing also more clients taking um, more actuarial-based decision-making in the DNO renewals. Mm-hmm. Um, so Marsh has um, a tool called the Ideal Tool, which is a benchmarking tool, um, which really tests the appropriateness of, you know, of insured's limits um, relative to their size and the nature of their business. So that's you know using tools like that really help um, with ensuring coverage. Um, also, you, you know, insureds might opt for a higher retention option as well to mitigate those pricing increases. And sometimes, you know, those higher retentions are out of choice. Sometimes it's forced. Sometimes insurers don't want to attach until, you know, at a much higher level. Mm. Um, so when you are going in that pathway of increased retention, um, really making sure that, you know, your company has the plans and processes in place um, to manage those below deductible losses. Mm. Um, yeah, I think um, also Ainsley, just to, to your point around you know what can organisations do in terms of attracting the the right type of director or, or, or you know talented directors. I, I think if you're on a board, if you're a director of an organisation, is you know making sure that you understand, I, I suppose, the impact on your DNO cover that, that those business activities are going to have and, 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 and take a, a really um, keen interest in what's happening with that insurance renewal as mm. well. Um, our, I suppose our approach is uh, where we can in terms of DNOs to, to, to ask our clients to actually sort of be involved in that presentation to the market. Um, one, 
nobody knows your business obviously um, better than you do and uh, and therefore if you can sort of talk through what your risks are, what your risk profile is uh, with an underwriter, that's really important. But equally important as well is giving, you know, for us perhaps going into boards and actually giving those board presentations about what the drivers are mm. and what an insurer is perhaps looking at and, and, and what's going to be the driver in that next renewal. Because if you sit in a number of boards, it might be different for each different organisation as you'd know. So just getting an idea of, of what that means for you and being involved in and making sure that you've got the, as Maria says, you've got the broadest coverage mm. um, come renewal. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so the challenge really is finding that right mix, you know, level or right balance between, um, you know, the mounting cost of insurance mm. and the, you know, right mix or level of protection for directors. So, mm. you know... I mean, companies and directors potentially, you know, facing a decision to reduce coverage or, or eliminate coverage in certain areas. So it's really important that that um, you have an understanding of what you have, and then the, ins- the insurance market also has an understanding of of, of your business. Um, in terms of anything sort of more creative um, on the larger scale, um, some larger companies, and doesn't need to be, you know, a very large company, they're turning more into captives. Mm. Um, so from January to July this year, um, Marsh created 76 new captives. So that's about, if you look at year-on-year growth, that's about a 200% year-on-year growth. So more um, where they can do it, where it's appropriate to a company, um, they're turning more into captives so that they can sort of remove themselves from the volatility of that market and have more control around how they're um, transferring that risk. So, for the benefit of our listeners, Maria, can you explain what a captive is? Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm not a captive <laughs> for us, we've got it down pat, but yeah. in a nutshell. In, in a nutshell, in a nutshell, it's basically the, the, the insured forming their own insurance company. Um, don't ask me how you do it. <laughs> you can do it in certain jurisdictions where you form this company, like Bermuda, I think, is very um, common where you can form these captive companies, but essentially it's creating your own legal entity which is an insurance company and then you then have control over how things are underwritten how things are priced and you obviously only underwrite your own risks your own risk. you're not <laughs> open to other third parties yeah um so if an organization was interested in, in looking at that um obviously size and premium spend is, is is a big driver size of the organization it's not going to be appropriate for every every um company um but you can do a pre-feasibility study and whether a captive option would be um, you know, attractive and, and, and a possibility for you. And then if that looks as if it's, you know, that could work for us, then you can go into um, then sort of doing a, an actual um, feasibility due diligence and, and, and what that would mean and what risks that you might choose to transfer in there. Um, you know, over the years, sometimes, com- you know, Companies that I've been involved in have transferred only their first-party risks, their property risks, etc., but not the liabilities. Um, but organisations I'm talking to now, um, interesting, you know, you were talking a little bit about professional indemnity insurance earlier. For certain industries, professional indemnity is a, a huge premium spend um, and um, capacity is really hard to find at the moment. So, you know, certain clients have said, look, I, I just don't, know whether over the next couple of years we're going to be able to you know afford this or, or actually want to 
to you know transfer all of that risk into the insurance market at that price. Um, so perhaps we should be looking at captives to um, you know to, to transfer risk that way. Quite a yeah. long lead time on captives, though, isn't it? It's not the sort of thing you can sort of decide two months out. No, no your right. annual renewal. You no. don't. You, you, you yeah. really you really need to be thinking um, at least the next 12 months and maybe even beyond that because there's a lot of due diligence involved and there's obviously um, you know a lot of work to do leading up to that. I suppose on that point there are other alternate um, risk transfer ideas such as discretionary trusts um, and you know the, the self captives which might be a little bit more straightforward but yeah look um, again discretionary trusts for, for certain clients is is um, a way that some of our clients have sort of been going. Um, different risks um, are pro- probably work better than others, um, depending on things like claims and, 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 and what that looks like. So you've really got to do the modelling again. Um, you'd probably take sort of three to six months for that at a minimum as well, because you would do the modelling around what your losses would be, what the technical prices um, being transferred into the market are, and, and how you would set the, the price for the discretionary trust. But at the end of the day, what it gives you is a bit more control and, and, and not just riding that market cycle and waiting for things to get better. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And do you use, um, do you still use uh, market assessments in terms of um, obtaining quotes from the market to price your captive accordingly um, for future renewals? You would. So essentially what you're doing is you're, um, the, the captive underwrites the risk, but then you're looking to reinsurers. To yep. then sort of reinsure out. So essentially, that's the yep. same process. Yeah. So, in terms of um, historically where DNO cover has been hard to obtain, and um, Australian markets have looked overseas and predominantly London market to obtain cover, um, have you seen a change in their appetite as well recently? Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. Look, it's, it's, um, I think that there's been a contraction in that market as well. I think there's, that there's been price increases. Um, London's not the only, I suppose, market entry point that you would want to look at. You know, we've had clients, um, and, and again, it's not just necessarily just Asia as well. For Australia, like, you know, certain Asian markets um, and London markets were always the, the obvious ones. Mm. Um, but, you know, clients, you know, we've used North American markets, Canadian markets, you know, for a number of different risks. So, yeah, I, I think you've got to be really conscious of what you're actually going to market with, where you, your best entry points might be, um, but because uh, London's just not the, the you know, the, the, the saviour for everything. You know, if I can't get in Australia, I'll go there and I'll find the mm. capacity because that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. Particularly yeah. around construction, those sort of risks Correct. as well. Yeah, construction yeah. PI and all, and all those yeah. things. But, yeah, I mean, London is not what it used to be, I guess, in terms of, you know, you, you, you used to be able to use London as, as competition for your domestic markets. Now you you pretty much need both, you know, especially yeah. for DNOs when you're filling quite a large, you know, high tower program. Um, you're pretty much going to need both Australian markets and London markets to give you all the capacity that you need because you just won't have enough here in Australia for larger programs. And um, I guess in terms of profitability in London as well, um, I know like London, loads of London um, has undergone. Um, sort of review of their syndicates and the profitability of their syndicates. And, and some syndicates, well, all the syndicates were forced to um, sort of revise their business plan and present that to Lloyds as to why they should continue on. And, and some 
couldn't really come up with a plan to be able to continue profitably. So there are actually a number of syndicates that have been shut down. Um, so that, again, reduces that capacity available in the market. So with those sort of high tower programs, are you seeing an increase in the number of layers? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because what, what's happening now is, again, in the soft market, you used to be able to get a primary limit for, say, 20 million or 30 million. You're not really getting those primary limits now. I think you'd probably be more likely to get 5 million or 10 million limits now. So you really need more insurers to jump in and, and fill that tower if you want to maintain that limit. Some some are even forced to have a lower limit because they just can't fill it with enough capacity. Mm. And obviously that will have potentially an impact on price as well. Yeah. The more yeah. insurers you have there, then the more. Yeah. 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 So... Yeah. I think you said before that there's been some insurers like Allianz that are sort of pulling out of the market. Have we got any new entrants coming into the market? Not, not really. Not really. I mean, in, in Australia, Berkshire, Berkshire Hathaway, yeah, been they, they've been around for a couple of years yeah. now. Um, they, they're doing really well. Um, they have a different business model where they don't use reinsurance, so everything is underwritten, everything comes out of their balance sheet when they pay when they pay out claims. So they have a, diff, a, a slightly different way of underwriting needs to be a really good risk for them to underwrite it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if anything, there's just consolidation of insurers that's, that's even driving the capacity down. Like you've got AXA Excel, or yeah. you had Excel Catlin, and then now AXA Excel, yeah. mm. Chubb and Ace, um, yeah. two really large insurance uh, companies globally and have now mm. merged. So all this consolidation, there's companies exiting, but there's really no one, no one, no one new coming in. I suppose what I would say is um, looking broadly uh, at the risks that you, you're trying to um, place into the market, you might find that you're using insurers that you, you wouldn't have used before. Mm. So that's, that's what we're finding. So your traditional markets, you know, property markets, for example, that might have written something 100%, um, might reduce that to, to, to 50%, um, and then you've got to make up that other 50%. And sometimes some of the smaller... Uh, niche-type markets or underwriting agencies are coming in to help mm. fill um, placements that you, you didn't yeah. have to turn to previously. So, yeah. And have there been quite a few travel claims because of COVID? Yeah, there has. I think there would, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there has. Um, you know, and, and yeah, insurers have, uh, have paid out on those. So a lot of cancellations, obviously. Um, mm. Obviously, companies are, are also not travelling, mm. no, um, or, you know, executives are not travelling. And so um, so the interesting thing coming around is when you're actually going through that renewal and saying, well, what does your next 12 months look like? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is very different to what it looked like before. Mm-hmm. Um, so so making sure that you can actually sort of... Um, most organisations are, are, are maintaining cover, um, but in a different way. So you might be paying, say, a minimum deposit premium mm-hmm. and then sort of looking to sort of uh, make a declaration to insurers sort of mm-hmm. later in the year rather than sort of declaring trips that you yeah. probably not going to be taking yeah not going to have international yeah. travel in the next 12 no no yeah. and that's the thing is because you know there's that there's this economic contraction you know means you have less people traveling you, you know businesses are earning less money less revenue there's that um you know that's really seeing insurance companies lose premium volume mm. as well from this downturn in the economy so they they will have to make up that lost premium volume yeah somewhere else through, again, you know, further increases in what's already increasing. 
Are you seeing, um, as a result of COVID, with uh, a lot of people working from home and things like that, are you seeing any changes to um, EPL or any type of um, sort of programs like that that are around employees? employees. I, nothing in terms of change changes. Nothing marked. I mean, it, it's it's a, a professional risks product, and therefore it's a, a difficult market. So yeah, our, our company's seeing. Um, increases and, and some limitations across those covers, yes, to a certain degree. Um, I think in terms of how you actually um, manage your workforce is certainly of interest to those insurers who are writing that. So they want to know what your, um, you know, what your strategy is, what your, your COVID plan is. That's a separate questionnaire completely, mm. which has to be filled out in, in terms of those sort of covers. So so not huge changes that I've seen for any mm. of our clients on, on EPL, Maria. I don't not, know if you've Not so much in terms of policies itself, you know, in, in terms of terms and conditions sorry, or premiums and exclusions. Um, but more so, I mean, we're probably still yet to see it if, if it happens. Um, but there's definitely, you know, a changing risk or an increased risk in terms of, you know, um, workers' compensation policies, you know, um, I think more... I know we did it at March, but we all had to make sure we're all ergonomically assessed and and things like that at home. Um, So there's definitely increased risks to your workforce and and their well-being from that. Um, In terms of the EPL, um, look, we're we're yet to see it, I think, because, again, speaking about the economic downturn and when there are... Usually when there are, you know, um, employees being laid off, you'd usually typically see a, you know, um, claims against companies coming out of, you know, um, I know GFC, for example, when that happened, then there's a lot of employee layoffs happening. We did see a fair bit of claims happening in that EPL space. Um, COVID, we're yet to see it, whether there will be some claims mm. coming out um, against companies. Um, it's a bit hard. It's, it's a different... I guess it's a different situation because GFC was more, you know, they're being laid off because of financial management or mismanagement, however you want to look at it. But this is COVID and it's like, it's, it's no one's fault. You know, mm. it, it, it happened, everyone's affected. So do we really want to sue, you know, make, you know, yeah, sue, sue the company that, you know, made us redundant or something like that for, mm. for dismissal? It's, yeah, it's, it's a bit different context. I think too with Job keeper and the job that's seeker right. payments still that's yeah. definitely it's helping. been helpful. Yeah, it's yeah. propping yeah. them up still. But definitely. yeah, certainly underwriters all are, uh, take an interest in how you're actually managing that workforce. Another uh, interesting thing is just you know just in terms of risk management is the mental health of your employees and making sure that you're looking after. I mean, organisations that have those uh, you know protocols in place and actually have you know um, sort of introduced sort of new. Um, ways of working and, and systems and look after their employees in that way, I think, will benefit. So so those are all the sort of things that underwriters are going to be really keen to understand mm. in terms of your workforce, I think. You know, systems like EAP programs and yeah, things like that. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. So definitely more information are being required yeah. because mm. of COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we know ourselves even yeah. yeah. new <laughs> renewal at the moment. So, you briefly touched on it before, Anne Marie, with exclusions around um, infectious diseases. So, with um, sort of specific pandemic exclusions coming out um, at the moment, is that something that can actually be uh, put on as an endorsement? 
the exclusion put on or the right back put on? Right back. So actually saying, well, no, we do need pandemic cover or infectious disease cover or is it just a flat-out exclusion? It's pretty it's much flat a flat-out exclusion. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm. Different insurers obviously have different wordings. Mm. Um, but no, you, you yeah. pretty much... Can't get cover. It's yeah. not it's not subject for challenge. Because mm. I think many insurance companies uh, will argue that pandemics were never intended to be covered yeah. by those, you know, property business interruption policies because it, you can't really model them. Mm. They're pretty hard to model. So, but the wordings, you know, have never really, you know, the wordings were probably have never sort of fathomed something like this happening. So there are, there are some avenues for insurers to make a claim for you know, infectious diseases. But so now every renewal that happened since March, mm. um, you know, th- there are standard um, London sort of wording exclusions around um, pandemics. So, yeah, flat-out exclusion for communicable diseases. Um, and that's also driven by the reinsurance market. It's not just your your insurance company that's, that's doing that. It's driven by their reinsurance because they can't get reinsurance for it. Mm. So, so, yeah, not, it's not, not for challenge, I'm afraid. And are you finding the aged care sector are being challenged with the Royal Commission and the pandemic as well, getting insurance? Yeah, look, there's, there's a number of different issues. Obviously, we had the, the, the Royal Commission um, now with COVID um, coming in as well. I, I think what we will see is the potential, again, for you know going back to the class actions, possibly, where, um, you know, Residents, families of residents are sort of looking to bring actions against certain aged care providers um, around their sort of management of that and handling of that. Um, so, yeah, so they were, all, they were already in a challenging time and obviously going through uh, much more scrutiny and, and you know, um, governance, etc. Um, I think COVID's added to that. So, yeah, certainly the aged care sector is definitely facing a few more challenges, I think, as we go along. And again, what we're seeing in terms of, you know, um, PI, MedMal yep. renewals and public liability uh, renewals, uh, insurers are now having their own sort of addendum questionnaire that yep. they need insurers to, to fill out. Um, without that information, they'll apply a total exclusion as well on the liability for, for diseases. But certainly the aged care sector is under, you know, tremendous pressure, even more so than they used to. I mean, you've got the Royal Commission... You've got the introduction of the aged care quality standards in July last year. And then, you know, just looking at the um, high vulnerability of elders to, you know, um, for death or to be severely, you know, sick from from catching COVID, they're they're certainly under enormous pressure. Um, In addition to that, last week or the week before, they announced, you know, in in the federal budget, $1.6 billion worth of funding for the aged care sector. So, of course, that's not going to come without the, you know additional obligation and owners of, you know, higher compliance and higher level of care, so. Mm. And um, with a lot more organisations potentially accelerating their um, technology strategies in terms of digital transformation, going online, Zoom meetings, people working remotely, have you seen an uptick in cyber cover that clients are taking or...? Yeah, look, it's always on the agenda Um, and it's always, you know, when you go through a a strategy meeting with your clients, then obviously cyber liability, et cetera, um, definitely has to be one of the risks that you're talking about more frequently. What I would say is that um, 
in terms of cyber policies, not one size fits all. Mm. Um, so dep- again, depending on your business and your organisation, make sure that the policy that you're buying is the one that, that's, that's going to respond best to your needs. And probably the key thing about any cyber liability policy that you might buy is seeing who those service providers are behind. So if you do have a cyber attack, if you do have a breach, that you've got the right service providers in terms of um, the investigation, the PR, all of that is is the right service providers that you've got that you can work with. Mm. Um, that's probably more important than the actual, you know, what limit that you buy is making sure that you, you actually have that service available to you. Yeah, definitely. Your policy. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, But so many people don't. They don't even know what cover they really have. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, when it, you know, it's been quite a few years now since cyber sort of first came out, but um, it's very difficult to, to, to sort of think, well, what's that, what's going to happen? You know, what does that mean? And there's also a bit of, you know, is it a cyber liability breach or is it crime mm. you know um you know with social engineering and social engineering is obviously huge mm. um in terms of sort of risk and and i can't imagine there would be many organizations that that, that aren't you know have either experienced it already or, or or going to so looking at how those policies actually dovetail together if you have a crime policy and you have a cyber policy how those work together um is really key as well in, in understanding the coverage but again you know going through the, the the risk profile for your business is a really good exercise to do rather than just say how much will mm. underwriter abc yeah. offer me you know yeah. and and how much is it going to cost mm. um, that's probably not the place to begin yeah it's not just about filling in an insurance proposal form and say give me quotes yeah, yeah. and then i'll get the cheapest one <laughs> so it's, it's not like that at no. all i mean it's you know, at March we even do this, we have a self-assessment form which really looks at the level of cyber maturity um, of, of the particular business and that also translates into a proposal form to the insurance market so insurance market accepts it as a, as a proposal form. So that's a really good start because it gives you an idea of where you're at with your cyber maturity, where you need improvement um, in your cyber resiliency and then what's the appropriate policy that, that, um, that suits that. Well, I think that's about all we have time for today, ladies. Is there any sort of top tips you wanted to leave our listeners with before we wrap up today? If your insurance renewal is is coming due and you're you're not thinking about it, I'd say start thinking about it. Um, give you know this is a year where you have to allow yourself um, as much time as possible, um, not just to go out to market and get alternatives, but to actually think about what you're what you're purchasing and how much that that might cost you. So if your broker hasn't spoken to you about insurance that's that's due either in the next three months or six months, they should be. You should be thinking about it really carefully, um, because it's not going to be a case of look at law work out. Some yeah. clients are finding that it doesn't quite work out mm-hmm. as they were expecting. Yeah. There's a lot of surprises. So if you're not there early, then you'll get your surprise in the last minute, and you're forced with. You know, terms and conditions that you're not necessarily happy with. Mm. Great tips, ladies. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us today, Anne-Marie and Maria. A pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. That's all for today. Until next time, happy podcasting. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, check out our other episodes and all things governance at www.threewiseowls.com.au.